So two weeks ago, at 10 o'clock in the morning on Sunday, about three hours before a few of us got on a plane to go on pilgrimage to Panama, a man came to church in between services and handed me a subpoena, <laughs> which I knew was coming. In fact, I sort of felt bad for the guy because he had trouble finding me. And so he had to take a weekend. He had to come on Sunday to deliver the subpoena for me because I kept not being in my office when he thought I was going to be in my office. So I commiserated with him and told him, you know, I'm sorry. This is really the only time you're going to be able to get me if you're only coming on Thursday and Friday. So, you know, I apologized and I took my subpoena. The subpoena was from a bank and every biological member of my family uh, was handed one because uh, my uncle, who died four years ago, uh, died having left the house that I'd grown up in, my family had grown up in, um, in foreclosure. Now, that house had been given by my grandfather to my uncle probably about 15, maybe even 20 years ago, and it should have been almost paid off at the time it was handed over to my uncle. But my uncle had lots of problems. One of them was gambling, and he took out a loan at some point, and he never paid it back. And then on top of that, he lost his job, and then he stopped paying the mortgage, and so it was a complete disaster. I did not spend that much time with my uncle, whose name was Tom, um, growing up. And it was pretty much because he was rarely around. My family was solidly blue-collar. And every other Easter, sometimes Thanksgiving or maybe not, my uncle would show up at the house and he would come in a pretty nice car. And he'd get out, usually in a Brooks Brothers suit with some nice gold cufflinks, only the best for Uncle Tom. And he would show up, and he would often hand out presents that showed that he had no idea what any of us liked or cared about. But they were always expensive. So there was this flash to this guy. And um, I didn't know him that well, and I didn't understand him at all. He was sort of mysterious, and then he would vanish again. Until late, in the late 1980s, when I was about 17 or 18 years old, we were in the middle of an ordinary day, and up the driveway comes my uncle, but he's in the passenger seat, and there is a guy driving him. And they get out together, and they walk into the kitchen where my grandfather, who you've heard much about if you've been at this church for a while, who was kind of like an Archie Bunker sort of World War II veteran tough guy, is sitting there drinking his coffee because he sits and holds court at the kitchen table. That's what he does all day. So in comes my uncle, and we all come to see who this other guy is. And this other guy tells us that he is my uncle's boyfriend. We did not know this, and so now we know. Now we know that my uncle has a boyfriend, but the boyfriend is tired of my uncle, who is clearly drunk, because my uncle has developed a horrible drinking problem, and he has lost his job, and he has lost everything, and he's in tremendous debt, and so the boyfriend has delivered my Uncle Tom to his family, 
and finishes his cup of coffee and wishes us all a happy life and good luck and drives off into the sunset leaving my drunk uncle at the kitchen table where all things have suddenly been revealed. There is nothing left. There is no missing information about this man anymore. Now my house was roughly about 1,100 square feet and I was sharing a bedroom with my mother and my brother's room was maybe the size of a like a medium-sized walk-in closet. There really wasn't that much room. So when my uncle arrived, it was, let's say, a little tense because there was no way to sort of exit the drama of what was going on in the center of our family life. And my, bro my uncle would go to rehab and he would come back and he would relapse and he'd go to rehab and he would come back and he would relapse. And my brother and I, to keep ourselves sane, did a lot of clowning around, such as my brother figured out if you spell Thomas McGregor backwards, it's um, the name, his name would be Roger Cam Schmidt, which is what my uncle's name became for a while, was Roger Cam Schmidt. We would talk about him at the table. And then one day, my uncle wound up being so desperate for a drink um, that he drank shampoo because it has some alcohol content. These are maybe things you don't want to know. Off he goes to rehab. My mother and my grandfather have this very tense conversation about whether or not my uncle's going to return. But my uncle does return because my grandfather is the boss of the house. And it's dinner time when my uncle returns. And everybody is staring intently into their meatloaf and not talking. And my brother excuses himself to go to the bathroom and comes back with a hand towel over his arm and a bottle of head and shoulders and a bottle of Prell and asks my uncle, excuse me, monsieur, would you like prel or head and shoulders with your dinner? My brother and I fell out on the floor. My grandfather screamed at the top of his lungs, and my uncle pretended like nothing was going on, and my mother walked out, stormed out of the room crying, and slammed the door. And that was that dinner. So this went on and on for probably, at least I got to go to college, my brother didn't. So until later, because he's much younger than me. So one day I decide, because I'm about 18 years old and I, I cannot stand my uncle at all, I decide that it is time for somebody to sit down with my grandfather and have a heart-to-heart -heart conversation about what's fair and about what's reasonable. And I decide the best time to make my attack, because I am 18, and there has never been a time in my life when I was as sure as I was about my own rightness in all respects as I was when I was 18. I have gotten stupider and stupider as time has gone on and more doubtful about my own ability to discern true right from wrong. But then I was sure. So I, my grandfather's an early riser. I get up. 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning. He's sitting there with his coffee, smoking, his chain smoking. I sit down next to him. I get my cup of coffee, and I just tear into him. 
about how my uncle has basically destroyed our family life, made my brother and my mother and me miserable, has contributed nothing, has clearly shown that he has no respect for any of us, keeps screwing up, and all he's doing is instead of proving that he can become part of this family and help us live together in something like a you know, like a, a, a hospitable, warm family relationship. All he's doing is just continuing to make our lives miserable. And it's my grandfather's fault. And doesn't he know about tough loves? And what we're doing isn't even helping my uncle. So why are we doing this? And why doesn't he throw my uncle out? And I'm just like sticking it into my grandfather and turning the screw and turning the screw. And I finally say, Granddad, why won't you kick him out? And I'm so right. My grandfather did not cry in front of me when his wife died of cancer. And my grandfather's eyes filled up with tears and he went into a rage and he took his fist and he pounded the kitchen table and he said, because he's my son! I almost jumped out the kitchen window and I learned something about love that I had not until that point been aware of. In the prodigal son story, the prodigal son comes to his father and says, die. He says, divide your hair inheritance. Divide what you have and give me my inheritance. Divide it between me and my brother. I'm out of here. And the father dies. He dies to the world. He says, here it is. It's yours and it's always been yours. And the prodigal son goes out into the world and could not screw up more destroys everything he touches. And the only reason he decides to come home is not because he's sorry. It's because he's hungry. It's because he just doesn't even have any place to go. He's broken every relationship he's ever made. His life's an entire disaster. He has nothing left and no place else to turn. And he does not come home because he's repenting. He comes home because he's hungry. And on his way home, he starts trying to figure out how he's going to negotiate with his father about the reason why his father should potentially consider cutting him some slack. He says to himself, okay, well, what I'll do is to fix this thing with my father. I will go and I'll say, I realize that I've messed up so badly that I'm no longer worthy to be your son, but how about you just accept me back like a hired hand? And I'll work, I'll work for you. And that way maybe we can make it so it's a little bit more fair. And he has this whole plan of how he's going to negotiate with his father while he's walking up that driveway in South Jersey, <laughs> having been dumped off by his boyfriend, right? Walking, but... The father doesn't even give him a chance to make the negotiation. The father, right into the middle of the street, 
runs after his son for everybody to see, doesn't even care that all the neighbors know the humiliation that this man has endured because of his son, does not have any shame, has no shame because this is his son. And when he gets to his son, the only thing that his son is able to say is, Father, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And he doesn't even get to point out the part about, but I will work for you and act like a hired hand. He doesn't get that far. He only gets the opportunity to say the truth. I am no, wor no longer worthy to be called your son. Before the, the father has wrapped his arms around him, and said, bring out the best robe we have and give him his ring and his shoes and kill the fatted calf and let's have a party because this son of mine was dead and he's been made alive. He only cares that his son is home. He doesn't care about anything else. This is really bad news for civic association leaders, for vegans, for people who register early to vote, for people who give regularly at blood mobiles, right? For those of us who understand ourselves to be good, Christian, upstanding citizens. This is really bad news because it is not fair, which is the thing that the older brother points out to his father while this party is raging inside of the house. The older brother comes and says, love us by how we've performed. Give us what we're owed. I have worked, and this is very funny, he says to his father, I have worked for you my entire life. The joke is, of course, in the beginning of the story, what happened? The father divided everything he had between the two children. So all that the work the son, that the older son is doing, it's all his to begin with. It's not working for the father. Everything the father has, he's given to the son. Everything he has, he's given to the son. And he says, the older brother says, and this son of yours, not this brother of mine, which is also one of the wonderful things in this story, this son of yours, who I have no responsibility for, this is not my brother, right? This son of yours has squandered everything and you've killed the fatted calf for him. Give me what I deserve. Love me in a way that's fair, where I can perform and receive the greater half of your love. But here's the thing that's true for most of us who are parents, certainly true about God, not fair. Our love for our children and God's love for us has nothing to do with whether we deserve it or we don't. Our love for our children and God's love for us only has to do with the and the nature of God as the Father. Along my favorite saints from the church in Hoboken where I served, Catherine Harris, talked about leaving the Catholic Church 
when she was about 16 years old and she went one day for confession and she lines up with everybody else and she gets into the confession booth and she confesses to the priest that she has stolen some money out of her mother's purse and probably went off knowing Catherine to buy cigarettes and hang out and flirt with boys. She was the saint of the church, the old lady saint of the church, like in her 90s when, when we knew her. So she did this, and so the, the priest listens to this and says, all right, I want you to go into the middle of the church and I want you to say 50 Hail Marys. So Catherine says, fine. So she goes out into the middle of Our Lady of Grace, which is this huge epic sort of like church, and she kneels down and she starts. Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and in the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and in the hour of our death. Amen. And she does it again. And she makes it through seven or eight. And then she finally has this epiphany. This truly Holy Spirit-filled epiphany. And she says this is ridiculous. <laughs> and she gets up and she walks out and she becomes a member of all saints. <laughs> and the rest is history. When you come into this church, in fact, in about 10 minutes, we're going to do this. We're all going to say the confession. I don't know about you. Sometimes I sit there and I'm actually negotiating like the younger brother, right? I think about my week and I think about confessing to God. I'm like, oh my gosh, you're going to need a 10 the hideout I screwed up this week. What am I going to do? All right, let me try to think of, I am going to totally change my act this week, God. I'm serious. I mean it. I'm going to think before I speak. I am not going to get petty and mean. I'm not going to be self-right. This week, it's going to be totally different. So I'm like, I'm, well, you know I'm probably not going to make it, but I know you love me, but I'm, my intention is real this week. Or I'll be like this. I'll be like, I'm going to think of every, it's like in the three seconds I have, every horrible thing that I've done this week. And so that way God will know that I'm aware of it and that I'm really thoughtful and I, I'm going to get my confession right. And so when I receive God's forgiveness, I'll know that it's airtight, right? Because God knows that I'm super sorry. This time it's going to be different. I do this kind of negotiation during confession. Here's the thing. That's ridiculous. <laughs> you were forgiven for all of the messes that you made before and all the ones you're ever going to make until the moment you die, at the moment of your baptism. And it wasn't because you were sorry enough. And it's not because sooner or later you're going to get your act together. It's because your father loves you in a way that has nothing to do with whether or not you deserve it. Your father loves you because it is the nature of your father to love you. That's it. This is fantastic news for alcoholic closet case homosexuals. If you're having trouble swallowing it this morning, I don't know what to tell you. Except there is a party 
raging in the kingdom of heaven as it comes to earth. And my Uncle Tom is there, and my grandfather is there, Martin Luther King is there, every crook and thief and two-timing hustler who has ever been or who ever will be is doing the chicken dance with St. Francis. Like it or lump it. That's who God is. And the only question for us is are we ready to go to that kind of a party? Amen.